Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Welcome to North Main. We're so glad you're here, and I do sincerely mean that. And uh, as Angela was mentioning and uh, Jim had mentioned, um, it's rough right now. I don't know why. The atmosphere, maybe it's just in Butler or Western Pennsylvania, is just tense. And uh, it's not a good tension. It's one of those tensions where there's a definite spiritual warfare that's happening in this space. And uh, it's something we can't avoid as the body of Christ. And um, even though everything inside of us wants to retreat and, and, and find solace away from the front lines of spiritual battle, we find ourselves in the thick of it. And uh, all I can say is God's placed us at this place and this time in this community for such a time as this. If God is for us, who can be against us? There is a God who marches into battle ahead of us. We know he is victorious through the cross of Christ, that he has already won the battle, and, and he is the victor over sin and death. But there's a sense of hopelessness that pervades and invades the space we call the body of Christ or the church. There are times when we feel sucked into the negativity of the culture and we look at everything around us and wonder, is there any way out of this? Is there any hope? And about a month ago, I felt compelled <laughs> in the midst of the Easter season and all that. Remember when I changed the whole sermon series? That was fun. And then, uh, but, but I had planned on going into this teaching uh, from Habakkuk, so, or Habakkuk, depending on who, who you talk to. Lynn Andres corrected me today. But, uh, but Habakkuk is a very small prophet in the Old Testament. And I don't mean like physically. He was like a mini-me. No, that's not what I'm talking about. It is a small book in the Old Testament. If you're flipping through trying to find it in the minor prophets, you will more than likely flip over it because it's only three chapters long. Habakkuk was a contemporary of the prophet Jeremiah, which we have a huge prophet, prophetic book in the Old Testament by Jeremiah's name. So they were contemporaries. Habakkuk just put it all succinctly into three chapters where Jeremiah wanted to draw it out. No, I'm just kidding. But seriously, if you read those two together, you kind of get a fuller picture of what's going on in the nation of Judah. If you aren't aware of this, at one time under King Saul, King David, and King Solomon, the nation of Israel was one unified nation. After King Solomon died and his son rose to the throne, Rehoboam, is when there was tension that began to happen within the kingdom. And so there were northern tribes and southern tribes that decided they were going to break away from each other. And so the northern tribes had a guy by the name of Jeroboam who became their king, and the southern tribes called Judah had a king Rehoboam, which was Solomon's son. So there was a divided kingdom for a very, very long time until these outside warring nations began to encroach upon the nation of Israel. The northern tribes succumbed to the fate of the Assyrian kingdom and empire and were taken and slaughtered, many of them, and the rest of them were dispersed throughout the Assyrian empire. But Judah, the southern kingdom, remained strong at least for a season. And then eventually Judah succumbed to the warring factions and brutalities of the Babylonian empire under King Nebuchadnezzar. Why do I tell you all the history? Because I'm setting the stage for what we're about to talk about today with Habakkuk. Habakkuk is in a season of life where the writing is on the wall. The nation of Judah has so far drifted from God, his ways, his morals, his teachings, his commandments, that the spiritual leaders and the political leaders even of Habakkuk's day have basically said, do whatever you want. 
Live however you want. It's okay. They had allowed the perversion of the teachings of Yahweh to enter into the temple, to enter into the holy places. They began worship of Baal and Ashtoreth. They had Asherah poles everywhere. And if you are too young to hear this, an Asherah pole is a phallic symbol. You can still, in archaeological digs today in the Middle East, they find the worship of this god Ashtoreth and Asherah, and you will find Asherah poles all around. It is a sexual perversion that evaded and invaded the culture. When a country or a nation devolves, it devolves into the baser instincts of sinful nature to the point where God has warned enough and he says, I'm done. And that's where Jeremiah and Habakkuk find themselves. Jeremiah is the one who's given the news to the nation of Judah. It's, it's over. Batten down the hatches. I mean, here's the thing. The Babylonians are going to take over. God's already told me this, and you just need to prepare for it. If you just surrender, for the most of us, it's going to go pretty well. But if you don't surrender, it's going to be even more massive slaughter on the Jewish people. Jeremiah tells the king at the time, you need to surrender and your family will stay intact and you'll be okay. But if you fight and resist, you're going to be slaughtered. So what happened to the king at that time is instead of surrendering like Jeremiah told him to when the Babylonians came into town and they resisted, do you know what happened? The king got to watch every one of his family members, his children, slaughtered right before his very eyes. And then the last fate that he incurred was the gouging out of his own eyes so that the last images he ever saw was a slaughter of his family. You say, how can God allow that kind of stuff to happen? He allows stuff to happen to a rebellious people that he has over and over and over again said, stop, don't do this, stop, don't do this, stop, don't do this, stop, don't do this. I have a hard time not seeing parallels with the United States. And no, the United States is not Israel. I don't want to take things out of context, but the reality is the United States was based on the foundations and morals of the laws of God through Moses and through Jesus. And I often wonder where we are as a culture and as a nation who are following in the same footsteps that the northern and southern kingdoms did in the Old Testament. Oh, that was the Old Testament, Brandon, and nobody's really sure if those things actually happened. And, you know, people make that stuff up. And Okay, if you want to take that bet, go for it. But as a student of Scripture and watching how things play out and seeing the truth of the Word and watching... Over the decades of my life, archaeological discoveries that prove time and time and time again the things we read in the Scripture are actually true. These were actual people in actual places at actual times that, that experienced these actual things. And so what do we do with that info? Well, those who don't learn from history, history right, are doomed to repeat it. And the irony is the experts of our day and age are asking us to reject our history. It'll be different this time than it was before. We can actually make it better by doing the same things that were done in the past that led to destruction. And we follow suit. Believing in the conventions and the philosophies and the high-sounding nonsense of the world. The same voice of the enemy who was with Jesus in the wilderness for those 40 days and 40 nights while he was being tempted turned these stones into bread when he was at his most hungry. Bow down and worship me and I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. Jump off the temple. Your holy angels will come and protect you. 
Jesus passed the test, but sadly, I don't believe we are. I don't believe the church is passing the test in our culture. And not that I want to be mad and mean and down on the church. I believe the church is the bride of Christ whom he loves and desires to see thrive and become pure and holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. I wouldn't be a pastor if I didn't believe in that message. But church, it's time to stand humbly and boldly or we will experience what Habakkuk and Jeremiah experienced. So here are the questions I hear often this day and age. Brandon, life doesn't make sense right now. Where is God? Where is God when my child has walked away from the faith? Where is God when my spouse succumbed to a terminal disease and died? Where is God when I got fired from my job and I don't have two nickels to rub together to support my family? Where is God when my friend got addicted to drugs? Where is God when this unplanned pregnancy happened? Where is God in the midst of all of this stuff? Can't he see and hear the cries of people who are desperate? And to that I say, yes, he can. And yes, he does. Well, then where is he? Why doesn't he show up when I need him the most? In an article from uh, the Toronto Star in October 2005, the article title was Prisoner Sues God. No joke. This is serious stuff. God was sued by this prisoner in Toronto. The article reads like this. The man identified as Pavel, and the last initial M, filed a suit in which he requested legal action against God, resident of heaven, and represented by the Romanian Orthodox Church, for committing the following crimes. Cheating, concealment, abuse against people's interest, taking bribes, and traffic of influence. Those were the charges brought against God by Pavel. In the lawsuit, he also noted that God had even claimed and received from me various goods and prayers in exchange for forgiveness and the promise that I would be rid of problems and have a better life. According to the news report, none of the good things God claimed actually happened to him. And thus, the plaintiff found himself in the devil's hands which is why he murdered somebody. His complaint was then forwarded to the prosecutor's office, but was eventually dropped because the defendant, God, was not an individual or a corporation and therefore not subject to civil court's jurisdiction. We laugh at that, but the reality is God remains on trial in many people's lives. Am I wrong? We like to judge whether God is good or not good based on what he does or doesn't do for us. We put God on trial in our lives for not coming through to us at the time we think he should and not meeting the expectations we think he should meet in our lives. We, we, we have con conceived in our own minds that it's okay to put God in the confines of our own preconceived boxes that when he doesn't do exactly what we expect him to do, like a puppet, we get mad at him and then we turn our backs on him. Well, I'm not going to follow a God like that. Can I ask you a question? Is there anybody on the face of the earth except for Jesus who has ever not sinned and fallen short of the glorious standard of God? So I just want to put things in perspective this morning. Romans 3.23, Paul writes in his letter to the Romans that all have sinned, not some, not many, but all have sinned and fall short of the glorious standard of God. Where does that statement put humanity? In a place of condemnation. We're all guilty. Am I correct? 
Okay. Our only hope and means for salvation from the guilty verdict is through Christ, who took sin upon himself on the cross. And it's only by him paying our debt that we are able to stand firm in faith and conviction that we are set free from sin and death through Christ. But we cannot walk around with a chip on our shoulder. I've seen mighty men and women of faith come falling and crashing down who have gotten pride in their lives. And have let down their guard when the enemy is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. We are told so many times in Scripture, stand your guard, stand on the lookout, be ready. But how many of us are truly ready? How many of us are really standing guard? Well, Brandon, I'm so busy I work this many hours, I've got family responsibilities, I've got bills to pay, and then by the end of the day, I'm not even giving thought to God, and it's not because I don't want to, it's just, I'm overwhelmed. And so everything else takes the place of God, and then we become like the people during Habakkuk's day, unwittingly, because we've not put first things first. It's a slow slip into degradation. And we believe and are convinced slowly over a period of time that what was once considered wrong is now right. And what was once considered right is now wrong. Habakkuk writes this letter to God, and I want you to hear his words. It's not Habakkuk 11, it's Habakkuk 1. That's a typo. Somebody fixed it on the screen. Good. This is the message that the prophet Habakkuk received in a vision. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Have you ever said that? Or at least felt that way? Violence is everywhere, I cry. Wow, i just pause there for a minute. How many of you, other than wanting to go on missionary trips, want to go to the inner city of any of our major cities today? Some of you, I know, I said except for missionary stuff. But how many, I mean, you're like, yeah, bring it on, Subway, right? Not the eatery, but the place that you ride on. Violence is everywhere, I cry. But you do not come and save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel that way? I'm a student of the Bible, but I'm also a student of the news. Because I believe in order to be able to address the issues of our day, you cannot turn a blind eye to the world around you. Billy Graham once said he kept a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other so that he could speak the truth of God to the culture of his day. And so I have several news apps that I read on a regular basis, and there are days where I'm like, I can't do this. No more news, because it's extremely depressing. I find myself getting sucked into the, to the narratives of our culture to the point where I'm feeling dirty and icky and I don't want that feeling on me and I have to say, stop, enough. Violence is everywhere. But you do not come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I'm surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. Do you ever feel that way? How are our court systems? Some of you work in the courts, and you probably see that business is good. Right? The sign of a healthy society is where the courtrooms are silent. But that's not happening. People love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed. <laughs> Are you seeing any parallels? This was written well over 2,000 years ago. 
2,500 years. Does this sound familiar? Do the laws of our system seem paralyzed? And there is no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous so that justice has become perverted. So now it says the Lord's going to reply. And what does the Lord say to Habakkuk? He says these words. Look around at the nations. Look and be amazed. For I am doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't believe even if someone told you about it. Do you see what God is saying? I'm actually doing something, but you're focused on the wrong stuff. You're focused on wickedness and evil, and you're missing the big picture. Now, God is about to tell him something that will throw him for a loop because how can God do what he's getting ready to tell him he's going to do and still be a good God? Listen to what he says. I am raising up the Babylonians, a cruel and violent people. Who's raising them up? Mm, That's not good. They are not God's people, they are a pagan and unholy and wicked people. That would be like God saying, I'm raising up the Russians or the Chinese or the nation of Islam. We wouldn't be okay with that, would we? (laughs) They will march across the world. And they will conquer other lands. Hey, and by the way, they're notorious for their cruelty and doing whatever they like. (laughs) Wait a minute. So you're raising them up. What does that mean for us? Their horses are swifter than cheetahs. Their tanks and, and... Jets are so much better than anything you guys have. And they're fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their charioteers charge from far away. Like eagles, they swoop down and devour their prey. I want you to take into consideration what is God saying in response to Habakkuk's plea. You think it's violent there, I'm raising up an even more violent people. And you wouldn't believe it even if somebody told you what I'm about to do. On they come, all bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind, sweeping captives ahead of them like sand. They scoff at kings and princes and scorn all their, fort- uh, all their fortresses. They simply pile ramps of earth against the walls and capture them. This was a tactic. They had such vast armies and shields that they could start to move earth against the sides of these city walls. And they would continue for months and months and months until they got a ramp just at the right height that they could go over the walls. That's what he's talking about. They sweep past like the wind and are gone, but they are deeply guilty for their own strength is their God. So here's what God's saying, which is going to prompt another question from Habakkuk. Not next week because it's Mother's Day. We're going to stick away from, (laughs) we're staying away from Habakkuk on Mother's Day, all right? No, we're going to go deep into Habakkuk on Mother's Day. No, I'm just kidding. We'll pick it back up the following week. But what he's saying is, listen, I'm getting ready to do something, and you're going to have a lot of questions about it. I'm raising up the Babylonians, and they are not for me. They're actually against me, but I'm going to allow those Babylonians to overtake the southern kingdom. 
My patience is run thin. I have done all I know to do with my people, and they still reject me. They still curse me, and they still make a mockery of me. They're sacrificing their children. I've never told them to do that. And of course, we don't do that today. They are, they are prostituting themselves, not just to other gods, but literally sexual immorality. If you read of the culture during Habakkuk's day, the Jewish culture... They had become so debased that men would have surgeries to become women, no joke, and women began to act and become like men because they were accepting the cultural norms and mores of pagan societies where they celebrated these types of things. The same things, if you do a deep dive into the cultural history of uh, Israel and Judah, you'll see a mirror image. The United States is looking back. And the same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. Here's the thing, the twisted perversion of the gospel from churches that say God is for us and never against us. But that's not what the Bible teaches. God loves us. The Bible teaches that. No matter how far and debased we come, He still loves. But there is a limit to the patience of God. And what we read across just a few pages actually spans hundreds of years. God is patient to the tune of hundreds of years and multiple generations of a people until the point where he finally says, enough. You think it's bad now, it's going to get worse. And it's going to get worse because I'm going to allow it to get worse. But I have a plan. And it won't always be worse. Do you trust me? I will never make a statement that I know that God is going to wipe out the United States. That's not what you're hearing me say today. But the reality is there are writings on the wall that are very similar to what I read in the Old Testament that you cannot turn a blind eye to it. There are warning signals. There are bridges out, bridge out signs along our roadway. And if we don't put the brakes on and reevaluate the direction we're going, we're going to go right over that cliff if we haven't already. And I'm talking about the church included. Do you know who the wicked people and the violent people Habakkuk is writing about? Do you want to know who they are? They, I said this earlier, the religious leaders and the political leaders of their day. The ones who were supposed to be holding high the standard of God and keeping intact the teachings of God's commands. They had perverted the law. They had begun allowing certain things to happen on their watch because it was lucrative to them because they could make some money. Or they could become famous and popular. In their arrogance, they led the people to hell. Except for the remnant that God maintained, the Habakkuk's of his day and age. And that remnant, if you read the prophet Jeremiah, he says, listen, I want you to know this is coming. You're going to be taken as prisoners and exiled throughout the Babylonian Empire, but I want you to settle down in the cities and the towns that they send you to. I want you to build houses there. I want you to have families I want you to grow strong and prosperous. Pray for the success of the towns and the cities in which you live. And after 70 years, you'll be allowed to come back home. And that meant some of them would never get to see that home again. And that's when those people who never would get to see that home again, who still remained faithful to God, said, I trust you, and even if it means it's going to be completely different from this point on, I'm still going to follow you in faith, 
No matter where I'm taken, if it means I'm in shackles in a prison cell, I will still praise you. And like Paul and Silas in the New Testament who were in prison for their faith, who could have said, I see violence all around. I'm being persecuted for my faith. They sang hymns and songs to God. And the shackles came off. And the prison doors opened. And the prison guards were saved. See, he's doing a new thing. But his new thing isn't always what we expect it to be. But do you trust him enough, even if that new thing leads in a way you don't understand? I fear that many in our churches today would hit the road, would leave their congregations and their fellowships of faith if crap hit the fan, so to speak. How long, oh God, must I call for help? I want you to know that God's always at work even when we don't see it. And God knows when you cry out to him, how much longer, O oh Lord? How long, O oh God, must I cry out for help? He's not silent as you might think he is. He's always at work behind the scenes. I promise you that. And the reason I can promise you that is in my 40 years of following him as a believer in Christ, as a little kid all the way up to now, I've watched him work. I've watched him do what he does best. I've seen him come through in ways that boggle the mind, but never on my time schedule and never in the way that I expect. Do you know why? It's because he wants to know if we trust him. Abraham, I want you to go sacrifice your son Isaac on the mountains of Moriah. I'm sorry, God, what did you say? Yeah, you know the one child that I promised you you were going to have and you'd become a great nation and your descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the earth. I want you to go take him and murder him, okay? Mm, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. Is that what Abraham said? See, many of us are put in positions like Abraham in the Old Testament where God calls us to do things that we're like, ugh, it's a gut check, right? Wait, you want me to not, you want, I, you, I'm, you, I, you want me, I, you ever do that to God? So Abraham says, okay. I don't understand, but I trust you. And though I've failed you, you've never failed me. So they take the long journey. They get to the base of the mountain. The servants stay behind, and Abraham and Isaac head up the mountain with the bundle of sacrificial wood on Isaac's back. Halfway up the hill, the mountain, Isaac says, so where's this? I'm sorry, Dad. You know, we normally have an, a living animal that we're going to sacrifice. Where is it? We have that. And you know what it is? He didn't say, it's you, son. <laughs> he said, God will provide. And so here we go. They get up to the top. Isaac realized God provided him. <laughs> Because he's bound hands and foot and laid on top of the bundle of sticks and wood. And as his father's coming back to slit his throat, there's a voice from heaven that says, Abraham, Abraham, stop! Now I know that you're trustworthy. Now I know I can truly rely on you. You've not even withheld your one and only son from me. The one thing you have prayed and begged and desired and wanted your whole life that I've asked you to give to me through sacrifice, you're, you're not even willing to withhold him from me. And so, and so I, I get it. I can trust you. I have a lot of notes, and I'm going to skim right through those. You want to... I have... You can read this later if you want. 
The second, the first one was, how, how long, a Lord, must I call for help? And the second point is this. God responds, I'm doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't believe even if someone told you. <laughs> how many of you have been hurt and burnt by the church? I'm seriously, I'm, this isn't rhetorical. How many of you have been hurt or burned by the Christian church in any capacity? I, uh, as a pastor, have wrestled with that myself. I've been burned by the church growing up. Many of you may know my story, but the senior pastor of the church that my mom and I started going to when I was 11 years old, about a year into going there, we found out the senior pastor was molesting the boys in the youth group. And one of those boys was my best friend. I won't call his name out. Um, I doubt he's watching. But my friend is still dealing with the fallout of that. And so are the young men who grew up in that church. I can't think of one of them that has stayed connected to the body of Christ. And I went through a time of questioning at age 11. How can an 11-year-old mind wrap itself around such horrible, wicked, and atrocious behavior from a person who claims to be a person of God? And I had one of two choices. Even in my little 11, 12-year-old brain, is that person a reflection of God or is God a reflection of God? And though that person should have been a reflection of God and should have been holding high the standard of Christ and should have been living a life above reproach, they were broken and fallen just like any other human being on earth. And there's only one perfect individual, one perfect person in whom we can trust, and that's Jesus Christ. When we get our eyes fixed on mankind and the structures of mankind, they will always fail us. God forbid that I ever fail you as your pastor, but I'm telling you, it's, I will never set out to do that, but I am still a human, broken and fallen and desperately following after my Savior. And my kids can tell you I stumble and fall and I don't do it perfectly. They are my best accountability partners. I was talking about this morning, that this morning in a class I was teaching uh, for baby dedication and child dedication next week. And I remember when our kids were in elementary school, they would broadcast everything that happened at home. <laughs> Good or bad, they would broadcast. There were our little megaphones. Daddy said this! <laughs> Stop it! No, Daddy, he didn't really mean that. He said, but of course it's worse in a pastor's family, right? Because pastors are held to a higher standard or expected to be perfect. I'm promising you, we're not. I want to apologize officially for the way you've been hurt by the church. I can't take that pain and that hurt away from you, but there is someone who can. And every pastor and church leader who is worth their weight in salt, who is being honest with themselves, should not be pointing them to you, or pointing you to them, but pointing you to him. If Paul can say, follow me as I follow Christ, he's showing you that we're all in this journey together. And I, I'm not asking you to follow me. I'm asking you to follow Christ. Why do I say all that this morning? There's a lot going on in our community. There's a lot going on in our churches. And the enemy, if allowed, is not only willing to have a foothold in the door of your life, in our church's life, in our communities, in our culture, he wants to rule it all. That's why it's a spiritual battle. You see, the reality is, 
he knows, the enemy knows something that I think we oftentimes neglect to remember. It's that the battle is already won. He knows that. The writing is on the wall for him. But he's fighting even harder because he knows that the time for him is temporary. The only way we don't give in to the tactics of the enemy is by being students of the word and applying it daily to our lives and do as Jesus taught us to do. If you want to be my follower, you must take up your cross. Deny yourself daily, Luke chapter 9, and follow after me. I didn't, it didn't say follow after Brandon. Follow after Peter, James, John. Who did Jesus say we are to follow after? Exactly. Then why do we even need to go to church or be a part of anything like this if it's all about Jesus? And why? Because we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We are to be a family of, of believers who rally together to love one another, to challenge one another to good works, and necessarily to rebuke when sin enters the picture. But we don't rebuke with condemnation. Instead, we get the log out of our eye in order to get the speck out of somebody else's. And in order to do that, we have to humbly come before somebody and say, brother, sister, I love you. And because I love you as a brother or sister in Christ, I'm seeing things that don't measure up. Can we talk? That's what a brother and sister in Christ does. That's why it's important to be a part of the body of Christ. But you do so discriminately, not indiscriminately. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Not every body of Christ is the same. But every body of Christ that is truly fleshing and living out the word of God will look very similar. When I mean find a body of Christ discriminately, are they preaching the word in all the fullness of what the word says? Are they speaking it but living a different way? I mean, you are able to scrutinize the different assemblies and fellowships of faith. Is it just ritual? Or is it truly relationship? But don't go into it thinking, oh, it's going to be, everybody's perfect. Or they're, they're a perfect, if you, if you find a perfect church, tell me about it. <laughs> there are no perfect churches. There are, me church, the church is an assembly of messed up people with messy lives working to try to do better as they follow Christ. All I'm saying is this, God is doing something amazing, he's doing something good, but it may not look the way you expect it to. He's always at work, even when it feels like he's silent and when you're alone. Don't give up. Let me close with this as our worship team comes forward. In his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Tim Keller writes this, if Jesus is the light of the world, why, when he came into the world, did he not do something about the suffering and darkness? Children still die prematurely, and there are horrible deaths in the world around us. The poor are still downtrodden. Young, young fathers still die in accidents, leaving widows and orphans to fend for themselves. There's still wars and rumors of wars. Why didn't Jesus stop all of it when he came the first time? But what if when Jesus came to the earth, he had not died young, but had come to put down injustice and end evil? What would the result have been for us? Do you remember J.R.R. Tolkien's dictum in the Lord of the Rings trilogy? Always after a defeat and a respite, evil takes another shape and grows again. He's right.
Consider the scientific and technological advances that have brought untold benefits in healthcare and communication into the world today. The communication revolution has been credited with bringing down the Iron Curtain in, in, in Russia in 1989 with the fall of the Berlin Wall and ending the Cold War. Yet many well-informed people now are afraid that terrorists will use that technology to bring down whole sectors of the electronic grid and wipe out trillions in wealth and bring on a worldwide depression. Nuclear energy is also a great source of power when harnessed properly, yet we know the likelihood of nuclear proliferation and unclear and nuclear terrorism. When a new development pushes back evil in one form, evil always finds a way to use and develop use that development to bring itself home to us in new shapes and in new forms. Why? It's because the evil and darkness of this world come into great degree come to a great degree from within us. So if Jesus were to have put an end to that when he came into the world, do you know what would have happened? That would have been the end of the world. In order for that to have come to an end, physically on this earth, he would have had to wipe everything out of existence the way he did in Noah's time. But he brought salvation, a different kind of good news to the world. And Peter tells us this, it's not God's will that anyone perish, but all receive eternal life. And what you think is God waiting and, become, and he's, he's late to arrive is actually him, his mercy that's saying, I still want more people to come to know me. I still believe good can overcome evil. We are so instinctively and profoundly self-centered, Keller says, that we don't believe we are. Do you, do you hear that? We, let me say that one more time because I want you to grasp this. We are so instinctively and profoundly self-centered that we don't believe that we are. And this curved-inness is the source of a vast amount of suffering and evil that we experience from the violence and genocides and the headlines down to the reason your marriage is so painful. Philosopher John Gray is an atheist, but on this point he agrees with the book of Genesis. Listen to what he writes. In comparison with Genesis, or with the Genesis myth, this is coming from an atheist, the modern myth in which humanity is marching to a better future is a superstition. As the Genesis story teaches, knowledge cannot save us from ourselves. If we know more than before, it means only that we have a greater scope to enact our fantasies. The message of Genesis is that in the worst, most vital areas of human life, excuse me, in the most vital areas of human life, there can be no progress, only an unending struggle with our own human nature. Now you see what would have happened at Jesus' first coming if he had come with a sword in his hand and power to destroy all sources of suffering and evil, it would have meant that there would be no human beings left. If you don't think that that's fair, I would argue that you don't know your own capabilities or your own heart. But Jesus did not come to earth the first time to bring justice, but rather to bear justice on his own shoulders. He came not with a sword in his hands, but nails through his hands. Christian teaching for centuries has been this. Jesus died on the cross in our place, taking the punishment of our sins, so that someday he could return to earth and end evil without destroying every one of us. Where is God when evil is everywhere? Oh, he's here. You just need eyes to see, ears to hear, and you need to lean into him instead of the world. 
He is our only hope. Nothing else will bring you hope that is satisfying and eternal in this world. Only Christ Jesus. If you're struggling today, which I know many of you are, there is a God who loves you and who asks you to stay the course. There's a God who loves you, knows your pain, someone who's acquainted with your griefs and sorrows, but he says, don't back down. Stay strong. I'm with you. You may not feel me, but I'm right there with you. With you, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Do you believe that? That's not just a cliche. And remember, if he is for you, truly, who could be against you? And for him to be for you means you have to be fully submitted and surrendered to him. Let's pray. Father, <laughs> you know what? You, you told us it was going to get rough. I don't know when Jesus is returning. The signs, the wonders of your return, they seem so imminent from your word. But you told us not to speculate on times or days, but to be found doing our work as believers in Christ. Being ready, but doing our work. And so we wait. And even if it's not in our generation, we know, God, that you still have this. You've got it under control. What looks like chaos around us, in your eyes, yes, is not good. But it's not the end. Help us to see you with clear eyes. To trust you even when we don't understand. And to follow you faithfully into the unknown. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Maine is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.